Hello, thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. For network or show information, visit byteradio.me or call 843-808-0777. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Dr. Carter Stout, and he is author of the new memoir, Lost in Ghost Town, a memoir of addiction, redemption, and hope. Psychologist to the Hollywood elite, Dr. Carter Stout, delivers a page-turning memoir about his fall from grace into the gritty underbelly of crack addiction, running drugs for the shoreline crips, surviving homelessness, escaping a murder plot, and finding redemption in the most unlikely of places. Dr. Stout's clientele include Oscar, Golden Globe, Emmy, Tony, and Grammy winners, best-selling authors, and billionaires. He may not be able to share their dark secrets, but the first time everyone will know his. At age of 34, Carter would have gladly pawned the silver spoon he was born choking on for a rock, a, a rock of crack. His downfall was swift as his privilege was vast. Or had he been falling all along from a youth of affluence to the, to the hit the Shoreline Crips put on his life, Carter goes into the, deep into the life on, on the streets. Lost in Ghost Town, a riveting, raw, and heartfelt look at the power of addiction and beauty of redemption and finding truth somewhere in, in between. For more information, you can visit his website, which is carterstout.com. That's C-A-R-D-E-R-S-T-O-U-T.com. Good day, Carter. Thanks for joining me today. Really nice to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, this is, this is going to be a treat. Um, you're, I, I want to know, um, has anybody already optioned your book for, for a movie? It has well, got all of the elements. Uh, yes, we, uh, we have some interest from the, uh, from the TV world, and we're talking to some folks right now. I have some great people involved. A, uh, the writer who wrote Dallas Buyers Club, Craig Porton, is attached oh, yeah. to write. And, uh, have a wonderful actor named Alessandro Nivola, who's a, a great, great actor who is um, interested in, in playing the lead role. And so we're, we're putting a team together, and we have a lot of interest, and it's pretty exciting. Great. Absolutely. Well, I, I, as I was reading, I just felt that was the next thing. Look forward to seeing that. Um, yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's start with, you know, first of all, publishing a memoir can be really difficult, you know, trying to decide what to include, not to include. So can yeah. you tell us why you decided to choose your memoir at this time? What inspired you to do that? Well, yes, the process can be quite daunting, really. Um, I lived this very unique experience in, in Venice, California, for a year of my life. And it was a story that I think is important and also relatable. Um, it certainly does focus on addiction because I was addicted at that time, but it's really a story 
about hope and about friendship and about love and family and um, also about uh, two different cultures. Um, uh, an African-American family took me in and really helped me out, and I'm, I'm white. And uh, so the, the story was something that I, of course, lived and knew that one day I wanted to sit down and really uh, mm. focus on and write a memoir about uh, but I needed some distance from the story. I needed to to work on myself yeah. and do some of my own healing before I could really get there. And and it took me a while also to gain confidence as a writer. Kind of like the plot hadn't yet come to the end. <laughs> you had to live a little bit more of it. Yes, exactly. I um, you know, I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be a storyteller. And I was a, a writing major in college. And but my path led me in, in a different direction. And, and when I was in my twenties, I was actually producing movies in Los Angeles. I'm sorry, in New York city, I was in New York and I really was trying to tell stories. And, um, um, and then I, this, uh, the addiction in my life really took a stronghold and yeah. I, um, lost my way for a bit. And, uh, and but I always wanted to to tell this story, and uh, began writing a, a, about five years ago. I been, began writing for a, a website called Goop. It's Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle website, mm-hmm. and it's a really interesting site. It um, deals with a lot of different uh, mental health and psychological issues and alternative perspectives. And I started writing for her, and I was getting very positive feedback for the articles that I was writing. And it really boosted my confidence as a writer. And I said, you know, I reached a tipping point and said, you know, I can sit down and I can do this. I can, I can tell my story. I can write my story. And that's really when it all began. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, so now it's one of the most important um, processes in, in writing the book is selecting the title. I mean, that, that kind of is, is like one of the most important decisions. So why yeah. did you choose Lost in Ghost Town? Yes, well, Ghost Town, a name that people use for a particular neighborhood in Venice, California. The neighborhood is the Oakwood neighborhood, and it's where much of the story takes place. And it was called Ghost Town because so many ghosts were walking the streets because it was really the epicenter of drug activity on the west side of Los Angeles. And it's where the gang, the Shoreline Crips, had a stronghold and they were dealing crack cocaine. And so Ghost Town is the name of this neighborhood. And I thought it was fitting because I was really, the story is about me being very lost in my life. And uh, so Lost in Ghost Town really had a nice yeah. ring to it, and it sort of evolved naturally out of the out of the name. Yeah, it, it, it is a really a perfect title for for the, just the whole journey and experience. Um, now, in the introduction, I mentioned um, about um, an affluent youth. Um, so, yeah. would mind sharing the listeners just like what was that about? I mean, what was the family dynamic that? Right. You know, I, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I grew up in Georgetown, and, and I had all of the advantages that one could have. My, my parents were uh, affluent. They were successful. 
my father founded a magazine called National Journal Magazine, which was a political magazine in Washington. My mother uh, actually was an heiress. And um, so from the outside, it would seem that I would have this wonderful and perfect childhood, but um, we never really know what goes on behind the, the velvet curtain. And what was happening in my home was that there, it was a very unhappy home. And uh, my father was um, off most of the time. He was an absent father. He was probably gone more than 50% of the time. And my mother was an alcoholic. And so I wasn't really given the attention and the love that I needed. And from a very young age, I felt disillusioned. I felt uh, I, I, I didn't know who I was. I didn't have a real sense of an identity. And I was very unhappy. And, uh, and so from a very early age on, I uh, developed an eating disorder um, at age 11. I began to have eating disorders, and that was a way, I think, for me to deal with the, the pain that I was feeling, mm -hmm. the neglect um, and the emotional trauma of being in a family that I was really uh, dismissed, I felt. And, uh, and so that was really the beginning of the addiction because uh, anorexia and bulimia are, are food addictions, and that was the, the inception of my addiction. Oh, absolutely. Now, I know, you know this is kind of tapping into that psychologist part of, of you. You know, affluence is not a, a real psychological disorder. But what can you say to the mind thinking of, of what that kind of, like you say, you know, from the outside, it looked like everything is great and rosy, but it, but mm -hmm. in, inside it's not. What, what's your feeling on, on that? Um, as a, um, just as uh, I, I don't want to say That's a kind of disorder, just a perspective. That right. Well, you know, I, I'm a psychologist now, and I have a practice in Los Angeles, and I do work with many people that are affluent, that, that come from affluent families, and uh, having money and having opportunities certainly is not a formula for happiness, um, and I see it over and over again. Uh, I, I, I think I live the story that so many people live is the story of feeling neglected, uh, feeling as though we weren't getting our needs met as children. And it doesn't really matter if you grew up with money or you, you grew up um, with, without money. Uh, a lot of the feelings that we hold on to as children are the same. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's, uh, the same kind of uh, spiritual, same kind of experience, but just a different setting. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, the, the book really focuses on my relationship with Flynn, um, who is a former member of the Shoreline Crips, and, and the two of us become friends. And although we come from very different backgrounds, he was African-American and I was white and uh, very different socioeconomic places, we found common ground. Um, he, his father abandoned him and his, uh, so did his mother. And so we had this bond that was used really by our mutual experience, even though we were from very different places. And that really started this beautiful friendship uh, that we had. And um, 
You know, I, I feel so fortunate to have met him and his grandmother, Beatrice, who's also a character in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. He and Beatrice uh, took me into their home and yeah. uh, included me in their family and showed me this acceptance and love. And uh, it was really a remarkable time and, and really irresponsible for me wanting to change my life and get sober. Yeah. Well, that Beatrice sounds like a hoot. I mean, she... You know, yeah. I mean, you can just as you're, you know, reading a, 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 her words, you know, you just get a real clear sense. I mean, of um, that uh, maternal love done she in African American. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. She was just uh, a wonderful, wonderful woman, and uh, was extremely um, family oriented and spiritual and forgiving and kind and. And uh, really took me in, and uh, and and told me to take take stock of myself and and of my life. And so, um, it's uh, you know the, the the title of the book is is uh, after loss in ghost town is a a story of uh, addiction, redemption, and hope in unlikely places. And it was a very unlikely place for me to find hope. Was in the epicenter of this very dangerous neighborhood in the middle of this uh, crack epidemic, this explosion. And that's where I found hope. And so that's one of the elements yeah. of the story that I think is very unique. Yeah, it is. Uh, now, this is kind of in connection with uh, this regards with like relationships. Now, at one point um, in the in the book, you in, indicated that at one point you had gotten to the the point of bag borrowing or stealing for drug money. And during that yeah. time, you're off the radar and lost touch with everyone you knew. So can yeah. you talk to us about um, uh, how that works with isolation? I mean, what, you know, what, what is the mindset to, you know, to isolate or, or how does one establish, or, yeah. um, establish relationships? Right. Well, it's, um, it's uh, part of the process, I think, of addiction is that many people, when they become addicted, they lose their ability to connect socially, and they really their their primary relationship becomes with their drug of choice. And for me, at that time, it was crack cocaine, and that's really all I was consumed with. That was my it was my mistress, it was my love, it was my um, you know, the, the, the obsession that, that coursed through me was really about finding the drug and, and you know, you make some uh, choices or I made some choices during that time that really went against my moral compass, which is I, mm-hmm. would, um, I would steal things. I was constantly looking for a way to, to earn money. And uh, one of the, the, those ways was, was uh, stealing from, you know, moving trucks that were in the neighborhood. I stole from grocery stores. I stole alcohol, and I traded it for drugs. Um, I was mm-hmm. constantly asking people to borrow money, people from my old life, that were I would appeal to them and, and create some sort of concoct, some sort of story and why I needed money. And then I would also be out of the street corner um, with a cup, you know, asking for mm-hmm. money. And it was all to fuel my, my addiction. And it was a very low, low point in my life. And uh, I was very alone. I was very isolated. I, I didn't have a phone. 
I didn't have a computer. I, I didn't have a bank account. I was being evicted from my small efficiency apartment in Venice. Um, and the only thing that I really had was a car. And it was because of that car, this old beat-up Ford Taurus that I had, they got a, that I was offered a job um, driving for Flynn, who was a drug dealer um, that we were speaking about before. And uh, that was the, the first real time in a long time that I had real interaction with another human being. And it just so happened that I was very fortunate that he was this kind-hearted, um, intellectual, well-read, spiritual, generous man that, uh, that although he was a drug dealer and it would seem contradictory, <laughs> uh, he had all these is, wonderful yeah. qualities to him. And uh, he really um, taught me my own value again and uh, was like a, was a great friend and, and a brother to me. And, uh, and so, but the isolation yeah. part, it was a very lonely, very lonely time. And, uh, you know, that yeah. there's a saying that, um, that, uh, that drug addicts uh, are the only people that treat loneliness with isolation. Hmm. Um, but we're lonely people. We, we strive yeah. for human connection, but we isolate. So, yeah, well, that's, um, yeah, that's the one thing I think for, for people to remember. I mean, I think two things of that. Number one is really not to prejudge people, you know, and yeah. people are very complicated. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but, well, very much what, so. would you, very what would you say was the, the proverbial rock bottom? You know, can you point, is there a particular, um, time or episode or something that you can um, point to that you think that that was really when it shifted? Yeah. Well, it actually happened, you know, uh, many things happened to me in ghost town, which were extremely frightening. There was, uh, I was doing a drug run for the Crips and I was down in San Diego and I was pulled into a motel uh, and my hands were zip tied behind my back and I had machine guns pointed at me and I thought that I was going to be executed. I thought I was going to be killed at that moment. And that certainly was uh, a very scary time. And there was another time in ghost town that, that the book talks about where, uh, the Crips had taken out a contract on my life and they were coming for me and I had to hide in the basement for uh, a, a night and they actually came down into the room, one of them, and almost found me. And so those were some really scary times. And uh, why did I survive and other people not survive? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure the answer to that. But, but the real bottom um, took place after that. And, and I think the bottom was uh, after I left, I moved back to Massachusetts and I was living with my mother who was with uh, her boyfriend. They were both alcoholic and they were both abusing um, um, uh, pills. And I continued to use. And I was driving a car on our driveway at night and I fell asleep and I hit a tree going about 50 miles an hour. And I hurt myself very badly. I, I broke my ribs. I 
dislocated my knee, I had a concussion, I ruptured my spleen, and I had lacerations all over my legs. And I was in the hospital in intensive care for a few days and, and in a hospital bed for a few weeks. And they were trying to save my spleen, so they had me strapped down to a hospital bed. And the strap was across my chest and one across my legs, so I actually couldn't move. I couldn't move my arms or my legs. And I lay there, and I had you know, an, a, an attendant coming in to change my bedpan, and I was being fed by someone else. Uh, and I thought to myself, I have, I have lost all of my power. I, I can't even feed myself or go to the bathroom, and I have to make a choice right now in life of whether I want to live or whether I want to die. And I think it was that moment when I just had I'd lost all my physical mobility, my power, I was hurt. And I thought, you know, uh, this is no way for me to continue living. And uh, that's really the moment, I think, that things shifted for me and I decided to get help. Yeah. Wow. You know, I mean, talk about having to be, I mean, that's like vulnerable at its highest. I mean, I mean, in complete surrender at that point. I mean, really yeah. not much else to do. Yeah. Not much else to do, and, and I was one of those people that really had to reach a low, low bottom in order for that to yeah. happen. And, uh, and after that, I went to treatment, and I stayed in long-term treatment for close to six months. And when I got out of treatment, I applied to community college and did a year getting my pre- prerequisites in psychology. And then I went and got a master's degree in psychology, and then after that, I uh, I entered a doctoral program and uh, got my PhD. And the whole time, I was working two jobs and took out student loans um, and worked really hard. And uh, yeah. you know, when, when I arrived there in treatment uh, or, or after treatment, my family had completely cut me off and. It was probably the best thing that ever happened to me, but it was very difficult because I didn't have any money. I lived in a in a small uh, apartment that was furnished, and it was $300 a month, and I had a really hard time paying that. I didn't have a car, and it was the dead of winter. It was about zero mm. degrees out, and there was a uh, – the apartment came with an old rickety 10-speed bike, so I was riding around Santa Fe, New Mexico in a, on a rickety old 10-speed mm. bike, trying to get a job and uh you know that's where my life in sobriety began wow that that is something so in this recovery process what would you say is um most important or what what are a couple important things that really uh, that were necessary to be able to you know tramp through you know go through it yeah, well, I think when I was using drugs, well, first of all, it was to really get the help I needed in regards to uh, being in therapy, working with someone, uh, finding people that could help me heal the real wounds that I was holding on to. I was holding on to a lot of anger and a lot of sadness, and I had to release some of that. Um, and that was done um, by some wonderful people that helped me when I was in treatment. And that was the beginning uh, to really wanting to, to be on a different path in my life. 
Um, the other thing was that when I was using drugs and I really didn't feel like I had a sense of purpose. I, I didn't feel like I had a direction in my life. And when I started going back to school, things changed for me. I started to, to feel better about who I was. I, I got up in the morning, I was excited about something. And so I think that um, one thing that, that addicts face is this sense of um, feeling lost, feeling mm-hmm. like they don't have an anchor. And I would advocate that they, they, they try and find something that really speaks to them. You know, follow, yeah. follow their calling, try and find their calling and, and get involved. Um, whether it's, uh, you know, volunteering at a homeless shelter or becoming a writer or working a job um, in any capacity, um, find that thing that, that really speaks to you and uh, gives you a place to go during the day and, and makes you feel like you're, you're valuable. And, yeah. and that was really instrumental to me. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, having living a life of isolation, you know, that um, being having a purpose and being a part of you know a bigger picture is is just the opposite of it. It's like 180 to that. So um, yes. you can see where um, having that purpose would really help combat that isolation, the feeling. Of yes. Very much so. Very much so. Uh, initially, I uh, I was fortunate enough to be in school, and there was a, you know, I had classmates, and I started to develop friendships with them, and uh, that got me out of the isolation a bit. And I, um, but I, I needed to do a lot of healing. It took a, a long time for me to heal, and ultimately, the most important part of my healing was this sense of forgiveness. I had to forgive myself. For all of the things that I had done and all of the choices that I had made and the mistakes that I had made. And then I had to forgive the others in my life, my, my mother and father and the people that I was holding on to resentment and anger about, I had to forgive them. And once I did that and I began to forgive myself, things in, in, in my life seemed much freer and, and a lot more simple. And yeah. I started to just really be able to not live in the past anymore and right. to be more focused and more present with the things that were happening and really more appreciative of, of, of the gifts that were all around me. But it really yeah. took this concerted effort to forgive and to understand really what forgiveness was. Yeah, it's uh, self-forgiveness is, is a real challenge for, for many folks. Um, now, yeah. Yes. Kind of in line with forgiveness is is redemption. That's a part part a word in your subtitle, the subtitle of your book. Yeah. So, to you, what is redemption? What and how did it happen to you? Well, I think redemption really is um, is the process of becoming useful and finding your self and becoming active in your community and becoming someone who is trying to um, spread love and and make a difference. Um, I feel like those are redemptive qualities. And, you know, my path led me in that direction, um, very fortunately. And so 
the redemption in my life has really been about um, trying to live a more spiritual life and trying to share that with the patients that I work with and with my family and with my friends and trying to um, emulate someone that I can be proud of and also my children can be proud of. I have, I have two, two small children, uh, a six-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son, and, and I am married. And I have a life now that is extraordinary. Uh, I feel, feel so fortunate and so blessed. And so the redemption aspect of it is really to take all of the things that I've learned and try and apply them and also give back, give back to the community, um, give back as much as I can. And, and I work pro bono with a few clients uh, that can't afford to, to pay my fee. And, um, you know, I think that that helps in a sense. And, and I, I'm, I'm available and I try to be available for people that are in need. Yeah. Yeah. It's real important. And by the way, you saw the, on Facebook, the picture of your family and it's, it's a beautiful family you have there. Uh, they're very happy, happy looking folks. Um, and speaking of LA, now you have a successful career in, in LA, the LA area as a yeah. depth psychologist. Can yeah. you explain to us what a depth psychologist is and, and depth how? Psychology. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, yes. Depth psychology is essentially psychology, right? Psychologists are psychologists, but you can either be a clinical psychologist or a depth psychologist. A clinical psychologist deals more with diagnosis and um, certain types of psychological intervention, and a depth psychologist is more Jungian in nature. So the school mm. of psychology that I went to, Pacifica Graduate Institute, where I got my doctorate, was really wanted to explore this, uh, this idea that the unconscious part of ourself really is the driving force behind our thoughts and our beliefs and our actions. And so a depth psychologist really tries to go below the surface and try and uh, ascertain what is happening in the unconscious. And through a better understanding of the unconscious, we can then help to mold uh, new understandings and help someone gain clarity and really be able to do the essential healing that they need to to, to find happiness. With, with that um, training, at the Pacific, I noticed that you also um, were trained in dream analysis there as yeah. well. So um, I love dreams. I mean, I just, I yeah. have a lot of folks on, you know, I mean, anytime I can talk dreams, I talk dreams. Um, so can you, how, how um, you know, what is your, obviously your view important, but what what is your view and how that can, how, how do you use those when helping your clients? Right. Well, I don't. I don't do dream analysis with all of my clients. I, I offer it, and if a mm-hmm. if, if a patient wants to come in that has a dream, I will take a look at it for them. And my belief is that a dream is really a communication of the soul. It's the language of the soul, and dreams are intentional. They're not arbitrary. And so the images in a dream, the events of a dream, the people in a dream are all symbols of, that are spoken in a language uh, 
as a communication from the soul. And many people um, don't really, most people don't really understand what that language is. And dream analysis is just really about teaching the language of the soul. And I feel it's instrumental because the, the soul that we have is our most authentic nature. It's our spiritual center. It's our most kind and loving place. And the intention of the soul is to help us heal. It's compensatory. It it tries to help us grow and to learn about ourselves. So the message of the dream is always uh, something that is supposed to help us gain awareness and to focus on something we need to focus on. Or, uh, you know, oftentimes dreams speak in, in metaphors and, and symbols and images, and, and they, but they are all intentional and uh, are, are generated uh, as, as the voice of the soul to help us grow and evolve as human beings. Yeah. Uh, I've noticed... Um, many times that, you know, a lot my dreams will um, include snippets from the day before, or maybe even something I watched just before going to sleep. Uh, sure. Do you think, do you think that our, our brains um, kind of use that, um, those kind of real basic kinds of um, experiences to be able to get the message through versus archetypes, you know, Right. Well, I think that certainly when we're, when we fall asleep, our conscious mind is drifting into the unconscious, but there's still rudiments and elements that are in the conscious mind that might bleed into a dream. So what you're talking about is, oh, you know, I was meeting with my friend earlier today, I was having coffee, and then he appeared in my dream. Well, that's the conscious mind really sort of bleeding into the unconscious a bit. Um, okay. But what I'm what I'm talking about is more archetypal, as you said. And, okay. And it is uh, as we get deeper into our sleep and deeper into the dream, the dreams do become more archetypal and they become um, more mysterious and less having to do with the the happenings of our daily life and yeah. more to do with um, messages that we're receiving from our you know, most authentic being, which is our soul. And, uh, you know, Carl Jung, who was a Swiss um, psychoanalyst uh, who was really considered to be the the godfather of modern psychology, he he believed that dreams were the most important way in which we could try to understand the psyche and understand people's moods and uh, their patterns of behavior and their patterns of thought. And he dedicated his life to analyzing dreams and, and analyzed over 20,000 of them. And he was such a prolific writer and such an important um, um, figure. And the theories and hypotheses that he came up with are, are fascinating. So if you haven't read any Carl Jung, you really, you really should. Um, and, uh, but, but so I feel like it, that during Jung's lifetime, dream analysis was really a focal point of psychoanalysis or therapy. And it's almost a bit of a lost art now. There aren't too many people that are doing it. But there seems to be a renewed interest in the past few years 
of, of dreams as well. And uh, people are writing about it again. They're talking about it a little bit more. And the truth of the matter is that everyone dreams, right? We all dream every right. night. Um, but we have this notion that, oh, dreams aren't really important. They're just, uh, you know, based on what our parents might tell us if we have a nightmare when we're children. Oh, don't worry about it. It's only a dream. Yeah, it's not, it's not real. It's just, uh, and so we um, internalize that message, I think, and, and start to believe that, oh, this, dreams don't really, they don't make sense. They're sort of insignificant. But I, I would argue just the opposite, that they are really vital and important. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't really thought very much about you know the parental oh don't pay attention to your dreams kind of thing. Right. And um, but, but yeah, that that's that's really. Um, and now you said everybody dreams, and we know everybody dreams, but not everybody can remember their dreams. So do you have any, a, a tip yeah, for? Yeah, I just say keep a, keep a notebook beside your bed and scroll down just a few images in the morning. Because usually we remember them right in the morning. Just just a few images. I was in a blue car. I was underneath a palm tree. And I saw my friend Lily. You know, just those three things. And then just leave it. And then if you, if you read that later in the day, it will bring you back into the dream. And the images will come up. Okay. Well, what, I just have one final question. <laughs> um, yeah. The, another word in your subtitle, the subtitle of your book, is hope. So, yeah. What how, how what do you hope people will take away from from reading uh, Lost and Ghost? Well, I hope first of all that they enjoy the story, and they find it to be a compelling read. And my hope is that it will inspire people to continue this conversation about addiction and about race and about the um, importance of family and because that's what the book is really about, friendship um, and, and love and family and race and addiction. Mm-hmm. And I think that these are things that most of us uh, encounter almost every day. Um, and I would ask that uh, people try to broaden their understanding of what addiction is and not demonize it and not think of it um, as uh, as a disease uh, or something that is an affliction that's ugly because it is something that is, is really pervasive and, and, and a lot of people experience it in their lifetime. Um, and uh, so I hope that that the, the story inspires people and that my story inspires people. Um, you know, I have uh, gone through some very difficult times in my life and had a lot of suffering, but I have lived to tell the tale and I'm on the other side of it now. And, and as I said before, I, I am a psychologist and I'm married and I have wonderful children and I live in a home on a hillside in the Santa Monica mountains uh, right next to the Pacific Ocean, and I really have a wonderful life. And and if you are or know someone who is in the throes of an addictive cycle, there is a good life on the other side. You can get there. And I hope that this book will de- 
demonstrate that that is possible. Yeah, absolutely. Just knowing that there is another side, you know, for some people is just, um, yeah, uh, just you know, gives that glimmer of hope. Well, well, noticed on your website, which is carterstout.com, you have the links to all those social media platforms, so I people do. can join you in many ways, which is great. And um, yeah. also, like you have information about uh, your book and your services, so. Uh, definitely welcome yeah. to you there. And it's Carter Stout. It's C-A-R-D as in David, E-R, stout.com, uh, carterstout.com. And you can find out about the book. You can also order the book on Amazon. It's called Lost in Ghost Town. And uh, I really hope you enjoy. Yeah, great. Well, thank you, Carter. We are connected on Facebook, so I look forward to following your journey and, and seeing the, the many um, ways that uh, Lost in Ghost Town um, reaches people. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My, my pleasure as well. Again, everyone, today, my very special guest has been Dr. Carter Stout, as he said, C-A-R-D-E-R -E Stout, and that uh, carterstout.com is his website. And his memoir, again, is Lost in Ghost Town, a memoir of addiction, redemption, and hope. And definitely go over to Amazon uh, or your brick and mortar and order it. So everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. To follow our show, visit our homepage at ByteRadio.me and select the platform you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.